Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Hi, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm alright, how's your day, how was your exam as well? Exam went, like, I was a little stressed about the exam. Really? Because, yeah, because it's, um, so it was epidemiology and uh, it was all 14 chapters together. Uh, and, it was, and it was all multiple choice questions, you, you know, there's no room for <laughs> adjusting the answer if you didn't yeah. know it. So, but I think it went okay. okay. It went okay. Is this um, Wilson's class? Yeah, yeah, this is Dr. Wilson's class. Uh, uh, well, I, I don't miss that part of school. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. I am Mo Sibyl, and this is the More Sibyl Podcast. Welcome back to the More Civil Podcast, a podcast about culture, cultural nomads designed for blacks and Asians and those who care about them. I'm your host, Mosibel, Nigerian-born, U.S. educated, Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual. I have with me a wonderful guest, and I met them in Austin briefly before I left Austin. In fact, they were part of the new cohort that came just as I was rounding off my, my program, so I really haven't had that much interaction with him. But like most of those cohorts, I followed him on Facebook and, you know, kind of got kept in touch, how you keep in touch with people on Facebook in that kind of way. But there's a particular reason I brought him on the podcast, which I'm going to divulge later on. But to introduce him, I would like to let you all know that he's currently pursuing a PhD in health economics and outcomes research at the great University of Texas at Austin, which I'm an alumni of. He was previously an organic chemist with several years of pharmaceutical drug discovery experience. He loves to read, he loves to play table tennis, he loves to cook and do small things that might seem unimportant but makes people happy. He's always up for fun and loves the outdoors. I've seen a lot of pictures, he loves hiking, he loves going kayaking. He also plays the tabla, which is a popular Indian percussion instrument. He used to be very, according to him, he used to be reasonable good at it, but now he's pretty rusty. So everyone, join me in welcoming Sam Gosh. Hello, Sam. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, good, good. So how are you feeling now? I am feeling good. Uh, this is my debut. Oh, oh my goodness. I feel so honored to be that person, you know, cracking that tradition. Well, I hope to do, you know, justice of this interview and really make it so much so that you can always keep giving more podcast interviews. Yep, yep. That would be my only goal today. So, so tell me, I, I know you you grew up in India, right? Yes, I did. So, can you let us start listening and also me know, like, so what was it like for you growing up in India and how long ago have you been living in the U.S.? So, I I grew up in a very small town in the eastern part of India. Um, it was uh, it was an industrial town and very cosmopolitan in nature. So, in other words, um, <clears throat> there are people living in that town from all over, uh, coming from all over the country. And, and so, um, it was very diverse. Uh, life was extremely uh, secured and sheltered, and you actually didn't know a lot about what was going on outside the town until you stepped outside. And back in the day, there were no internet. It wasn't like we have it today. Information didn't come um, so easily, uh, other than TV and newspapers and magazines. I mean, inter- internet wasn't, st- wasn't still a thing back then. 
And uh, so I grew up there, did my high school, and then went to Chennai for my undergrad. So and where did you grow up? What's the name of the city? What's that place called? Is it Bangalore? No, it, my mother tongue is Bengali, uh, but, yeah. but this place was called Sindri, and it was east of uh, Bengal. And the uh, state at the time was called Bihar, but now it's called Jharkhand. They, they changed the name. Mm. Um, okay. They divided the state into, uh, into two different states, and the part that I come from is called Jharkhand now. Okay, good. But go ahead. So you went to Chennai for your secondary school? Uh, for my undergrad. Uh, yeah, and, and so I was there for four years, did my bachelor's in pharmaceutical sciences, and then worked for a year before moving to the U.S. And believe it or not, I've been in the U.S. for a while. I've, I've been in the U.S. for almost 14 years now. Wow. What, what, what made you leave then? Like, what, what was it for school or just, you know, you got a job? Like, what was your path like? Uh, why did I leave? Why did I leave for the yeah. U.S.? Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you have noticed this, but a lot of my friends, including me, we typically end up following our older sibling, right? Uh. So, <laughs> so my sister, she's six and a half years older than me, and growing up, I uh, kind of always looked up to her, did what she did. We also had differences, but so she she moved to the U.S. Uh, she worked here before going to business school. To be really honest, there was some thought that I put into it, but also looking back, I feel like I could have pursued other options. But the fact that my sister, you know, traveled to the U.S. To, for her higher education, I was like, okay, I should also do that, and I just went ahead and did it. Primarily, that was the reason why. And then also, back then, higher education in the basic sciences was not as evolved as it is today in India. So if you wanted to pursue higher education, particularly within the basic sciences, typically you would want, typically you would want to move out, uh, move out of India and seek admission in, in an university based out of one of the western countries and the yeah. US, US seemed like a popular destination so yeah. okay thanks for sharing that so you moved here and then you did you go for a master's degree or well of course so the goal was to go for a PhD but yeah. I, I was in a master's program and then uh, towards the end of the program while I was planning to apply for uh, a PhD in a different school I was offered a position. I was at a conference in, and I met a bunch of people, interviewed, and ended up uh, getting a job offer. And after talking to people, it seemed like a wise thing to do because a, a lot of the professors, some of the senior students, they said might be a good idea to, you know, get a year, uh, two years of job experience. Uh, before you go back to school for your PhD. So that's how I started working. And my first job was at Pfizer, based out of Groton, Connecticut. How long um, were you Pfizer for? And what was the job description? Initially, I, w I was working as an organic chemist, contributing in optimizing and designing routes for potential drug-like compounds across a neuroscience and antibacterial therapeutic area. So, yeah. Okay. Good. So I know most people like listen to this might not really know this, but the end goal of going for a PhD is to probably land a job anywhere. Especially in our field, you might end up in farmer or you might end up working in academia like I do. 
But you seem to have, you know, you went the other way around. So you, you got a job at Pfizer and then you decided to come back for grad school. What kind of prompted that decision to move the other way around? The time that I spent uh, in drug discovery, that was also the time when uh, the whole industry was probably going through a paradigm shift. And the shift was happening with respect to how small molecule drug discovery traditionally happened and the new direction that it was going towards. And also, uh, the focus was slowly moving towards biotherapeutics, monoclonal antibodies, newer paradigms of coming up with a drug like candy. And I realized that my skill set at the time was extremely, it was a niche uh, skill set. And there was not a lot of diversity in terms of different things that I could do. And I wanted to move away and do something where you could potentially try your hands at several different things. And as you know, within health economics and outcomes research, depending on what you're focusing, what you're focusing in uh, at grad school, you could take up a job as a statistician, you could take up a job as a market access person, you could take up a job as a modeler. There's a bunch of different things that you could do and so that I found was attractive so that I guess that was the main reason why I uh, I decided yeah. very good so so far how's grad school been like for you this is like your second year right yes 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 uh, I'll be finishing my second year yeah how's it like how's it been so far I love the research part but there's there's a lot of coursework <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll just talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, it helps. In, it helps with respect to the breadth of things that you learn, but it also takes up a lot of your time. But other than that, I've also made new friends and uh, exploring Austin and UT is an awesome place. Yeah, it is. If there's anything that you would want to or like to do, there's a place in UT where you can go and do. It. Very true. Yeah. So yeah. so it's been it's been great so far. What would you say for those that are listening or those that are even considering, you know, leaving the workforce and going back to school, um, what would you say was the hardest adjustment for you to make? And along that line, how have you been able to overcome that if you have been able to do that? I have to be brutally honest, it's the paycheck. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, That's so in grad you don't get paid a salary, they actually call it a stipend. They don't call it a stipend for nothing because it's like a huge paycheck cut. You were yeah. doing a pay cut to go to grad school. <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so the journey, the backwards journey from your salary to a stipend is a very painful one. <laughs> mm, mm. But, but here's, here's what I would say. If you have thought long and hard, and if you have absolute clarity about why you want to make that change yeah. then the transition is not that hard but you have to be very very sure and honest to yourself like you really want to do this because if there is any dilution in in your resolve or and, and if there's any dilution in terms of the reasons why you want to walk away from a job and then go back to school yeah then beyond a certain point, it will start becoming frustrating. Very true, very true. I always used to say, um, it's always good if, if you're like me, a visual learner, have something 
I, I don't know, by your bathroom or in your bedroom, where you can see it every day, why you decided to come back to grad school in your case or why you decided to go to grad school in my case. Because that reminder is really going to help you on days where you just feel like quitting. For me, it was like, what else would I have been doing with my time? Because it really meant for me, it really meant a lot to me to go back to grad school, to learn more about patient care, especially understanding the socioeconomic impact of adherence in chronic infections. So you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Because if you don't always remind yourself that, like you said, it's going to be doubly frustrating for you when, those, when it really gets rough. It's a very good point. Very, very good point. Yeah, and I think for me, because like some of my friends, even today, they're like, are you... I've been told that I'm having a midlife crisis. That's why <laughs> I left the job. And, uh, but, but here's... Like, for me, it wasn't a sudden decision. I thought about it for almost three years. And wow. there comes a point when you know internally that 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 is what you want to do, and, and there's there's mm-hmm. no doubt in your mind that you and take. And I would strongly uh, suggest that you, you take as much time, like for somebody who is actually playing with the idea or contemplating, take as much time as you want. Give yourself yeah. time till you reach a point where you're like, okay, if I don't do this, I'll be miserable, and then mm-hmm. take take the jump, and it'll be you know. Um, it'll be worthwhile. Very good. Very, very good. Uh, now, for those listening, another reason I brought some to the podcast was a post he had shared on his Facebook page sometime in November, I think. And, uh, I mean, when I read that, I made a comment about it, and, I, and I, I held it in my heart for a long time. And when I finally got this podcast starting, I knew without a doubt that I had to bring him on board so, you know, we could really explore that. And it was a post on grief. I'm going to do my best to, you know, read it out. It's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. So Sam wrote this in November of 2017. He said, This day last year, my father passed away. While he was in ill health, his demise at the time that it happened was unexpected by all medical statistical norms. With his demise, I lost my second parent. Grief can be relentless and almost always robust. However, the nature of grief during the first parental loss is characteristically distinct from the second parental loss. During the first parental loss, there is a transactional framework of support system between the surviving parents and the child, at least in my case, to an extent that one might underestimate the overreaching ability to grieve to startle you. The nature of grief after the second parental loss is incredibly insidious and unexpectedly long-lasting. The long-lasting nature of this grief delivers a fresh new comprehension to certain constructs in the most perceptive way possible, despite having the knowledge of them for the longest time. Some such constructs are, death is way more real than the way we think of it on any random day. Second, death is absolute and irreversible, relevant because you stand there looking at their cups and tell yourself in your head, what if a miracle happens and he comes back to life? No matter how habitually objective you are as a person, in that moment you believe that with every bit of conviction that can be gathered that he might come back to life. It doesn't matter what your deal is, you may be King Kong in HD or you may be a fire breathing dragon, or most importantly you may be the Batful, that's a Bengali superhuman comic character that he read a lot while growing up. Do not fight grief, let it take its course, work with it and allow it to dilute and fade away into oblivion. Burial as a post-demise procedure is a more affectionate, enduring, lasting and reinforcing way to be a warm farewell to a near one as opposed to the Hindu, I'm a Hindu by the way, way of, as, as opposed to the Hindu way of cremation, that is combustion. 
I'm sure there's a rationale for the Hindu way of saying goodbye, but once it's done, you have nothing left of the bodily form. In the case of the former, you restore his sense of belonging because you know that the organic remains remain and that you can always sit next to the grave for the rest of your life, whether you want, and have a casual chat knowing that there's some matter in particular form that you can relate to. Apart from your spouse, partner of several years, I'm thinking at least 35 years, arbitrary selection of a number, your parents, assuming they're normal and regular folks, and the family dogs like cats, cats are just too funny, arrogant, and indifferent. Haha, <laughs> other pets, I am clueless. You have to actively put in the work to earn the love and trust we seek. The aforementioned three relationships by far are the sole premises where the condition of unconditional love holds true. So when one of these premises is gone forever, shit gets real. When I read that song, it, it connected a lot with me, which I'm, you know, gonna share. I saw the chemistry in you talking about the organic nature of it. I saw the grief, like, really, really expressed. It came down to let grief run its course. Because you, there's no use fighting it. It's like when you're drowning in an ocean. Now, I know it's been, I think, almost two years now. Yeah. Your, your parents passed away. What was that? How has that been like for you? And how have you found ways to cope? With me, what happened was, so I left home when I was 17 years old. And I don't think my parents really, like, got to know me as a grown adult. Because hmm. since I left home, we would always meet. We would meet every year. Either they yeah. would visit or I would go back. But... We didn't spend extended period of time where they probably knew the adult that I have grown into, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so my mother passed away in 2010. And, but time, yeah, and, and so, but then, you know, I had the, I had these conversations with my father and it was, it was much different than the second time when it happened. And also, I actually wrote that because that year I was miserable. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, memories coming in and going and things you wanted to say, things you wanted to did. I mean, things you wanted to do with him, uh, things you wanted yeah. to tell him. Because you, you always keep postponing, right? Like, okay, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe next, maybe on his next birthday. Or maybe when he visits me here next yeah. time, I'll take him there. Or maybe when I visit next time to India, I'll do this. And then... Suddenly, when something like this happens, even though you knew it, you suddenly realize that the irreversible nature of the process, mm. just there's nothing to you, it's, it's done. And so, and this actually my friend, my, a good friend of mine suggested that, because he and I would have these conversations Friday evenings, Saturday evenings, and then he's like, you need to, you need to let it out, like, he actually said, he actually told me to write an account on Medium. And yeah. I didn't even know at the time what Medium was. And I know I might sound really ignorant because <laughs> everyone knows what Medium is. So, but then I didn't get to that point. I guess the, the, I guess what was happening with me was I was trying to rationalize um, a lot of the thought processes that was going through my mind in that year. And then at one point I realized that you just have to let it. Right, it yeah, if if you if if something about him or if um, memories about him wants to come to uh, your mind and let it just let it happen and and then if if you just roll with it, eventually you will accept it and come to terms with it. And one thing, the other thing that also helped me was, and again, all of this, I think we all know, but it just doesn't come to the surface until you maybe take some time out and think, uh, reflect. So I was in India December 2017, right? Yeah. Uh, so, la- so January, so December 2017 and then January 2018, I was in India. 
and uh, I met a very close friend of his, and he had read my post. Uh, he he's super well read, super sarcastic, has a great sense of humor. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and he said, "Well, I read your post, and um, one of the things that you have written, it's just stupid, and it, you you seem you, you look ignorant." I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well," wow. uh, and he said, "Well, you know, why do do you, do you know why Hindus are cremate?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, I said whatever I had to say, but but he said the point is that Hindus, because you have said you don't understand why Hindus cremate." And you think burial is a better option? He said the reason you yeah. cremate is because you have to let go. Cause it, ah. Yeah, because nothing remains, and you just let go, and then you hope that the soul gets liberated. I, I thought that was pretty profound, and it's something that's it's not that hard to wrap your head around, but it doesn't it doesn't click. Like you don't think of it that way. Yeah going to be a slow, gradual process, but the end goal is to be able to be comfortable with letting go. Yeah. Huh. It's funny you mentioned that, because I've heard it said, like, in the West here, there's a way we don't let grief run its course, we just want to rush the process. And I find it ironical that, as opposed to in the East, for example, in your culture, where cremation is usually passage of rights, in a way, and you find that as rapid as that might sound, there's a way the non-Western culture deals better with grief than the Western culture, where even though we might have the grief sites and things like that, we still really don't know how to, you know, grief properly. So, I mean, now that you just mentioned what your um, dad's friend talked to you about, about why you Hindus, why you guys do cremation is to let go. I thought that was very, very enlightening in a way. I mean, I didn't look at it from that point of view. And if, if you read what I wrote, it basically I was just having trouble letting go and and so after he told me that then i started processing it from a completely different i always try to keep in mind what he said and i have found that in the last few months it's, it's much more helpful as opposed to the way i was processing it before yeah and now you you said something about because you left home when you were 17 would you say you in a way have about some guilt about not having that opportunity for your parents to get to know you due to, you know, the circumstance of living home. Do you think that probably added to your grieving process? Exponentially component wow. to that process, yes. Because wow. I'm involved with my undergraduate institution and I do a lot of work mm-hmm. with, with um, students trying to apply for, um, you know, U.S. or European universities. And whenever, yeah. we have, whenever we have conversations, I always, like if they ask me, like, hey, I like, you know, one sibling needs to stay back. It's absolutely important. Uh, yeah. You know, if possible, then it's absolutely important that one sibling stays in India. Because uh, yeah. after a certain age, it gets very hard to manage uh, both your work life here and spend time that you should be spending with your parents back home. Yeah, it's absolutely... Yes, you you. You're absolutely right there. Part of that precipitated from the guilt that I couldn't spend enough time. And um, I just want to assume, just you and your sister, right? Yeah, my sister and I. Okay. Okay. How are you feeling now? Like, how would you say the grief has been like? I I know you, you would never be able to forget your parents ever. 
But would you say the pain of, of that loss, you think it's lessened over time or it's just about the same, but you're just learning to let go? Uh, it's intermittent. I mean, there are certain times of the year when you really miss them. Yeah. And then it, it kind of fades away. And then certain conversations or incidents or uh, if you're reading something, uh, something could trigger that memory. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's an intermittent um, flow of thought processes. And I'm hoping at yeah. some point it kind of equilibrates and converges. Okay. Uh, thanks for asking that. And once again, I accept my condolences. Um, I can't imagine losing a parent, top of two parents, and, and just all of the emotions that, that go with that. I have experienced personal grief, but not on that scale as you have. And even the one I went through, it felt, I mean, it felt like, like you said, you, you pray that they come back and things like that. And I think what really helped me was just letting grief run its course. I think one of the things we don't really do well as a, as a people is we don't... I think grief is something that is very awkward to process. So those around you want you to just, in a way, get over it. Not in a very cruel way, but they just they didn't want to see you that downcast. But what's saying that you need to be that downcast to be able to process the grief very well. So until I had time for myself and, you know, just cry and let it just reverse through my body, that was when I was really, really able to let go. It's, but even letting go is just, because you can never really let, you can never really let go. You can never forget. You can never, you know, um, in a way 100% forget about that loss. But I think with time, it doesn't, it doesn't sting as much. So I hope that with the passage of time as well for you, you feel a lot consoled by this loss. And also what, also what I realized was one has to make a deliberate effort to take some time out. And, yeah. and I think in our culture, so when the news came, I went back and there was so much to do in terms of, because my sister and I, we both live here. He lived there. He would be meeting a, a ton of well-wishers and they mean well, They'll they want to be there and then you're meeting all these people and then you have to do all the rest of the stuff that you need to take care of. And yeah. in my case, I could not, like, initially I could not take the time out. And so all of that precipitated much later when the dust settled. And yeah. so so I think it's absolutely important that if somebody is in my, like, in a situation like that, you have to deliberately make the effort to take time out and introspect to process the, the event. You're right, you're right. I think for me, my nature is to take care of other people. And I found out that even when I went through that grief, I wanted to just get over it strongly so I could comfort people around me because it was, it was really sad. But then if you neglect yourself, which, you know, happened, because it happened sometime in May of many years ago. It happened in a year in May. And I had delayed that grief until, like, December when I realized that, okay, there was still that vacuum in my heart that I hadn't, you know, attended to. So I just shut myself away from everybody for like some days and I cried. I don't think I've ever cried that way in my life before. The only way I can explain that was when you hear an animal grieving for its cub. Like that was how I cried and you know, I've never been able to reproduce that, that, that sound that I, that I let out. But I think that was just the first step in, in let it go. It's been almost four years now. I still haven't forgotten it. But you know, I'm glad I took out that time to just take care of myself and attend to that grief because you have to let it run its course. You can keep doing things to make you busy and, you know, um, 
survive every day but as you attend to it and label it for what it is this is sadness this is anger this is pain right it's really gonna be difficult to make up yeah, yeah absolutely anyways before we go into the Mardi Gras, I just wanted to ask you one last question along that line. For those that might be experiencing grief in one form or the other, in addition to what we've said, are there any other things you would like to pass down that can help them cope or things they could do to really help them, you know, survive through this? Uh, share. Find somebody that you trust. If that doesn't work, then find somebody who's a complete stranger. So in my in my opinion, both works, depending on the personality of the person, whether the person is an extrovert, introvert, or whatever your deal is, and then share. So in my case, I share a lot with this friend of mine. And also, when you choose to share with somebody, it is important that the person that you're sharing it with has the maturity to process, is empathetic enough, and has the maturity yeah. to be able to at least understand the the emotional roller coaster that you are going through. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I think sharing is absolutely important. Second, counseling also helps. Right, true. And I had to go through counseling. What really broke my walls was when I got in there and she'd ask me, what country are you from, like, Nigeria? She's like, oh, my goodness. I can't imagine how much work it took you to come here today, but I'm glad you did. And I remember just sobbing all through it. But over time, it really helped. So if you don't find some, if you don't have somebody around you that can listen to you, find somebody that you can pay to listen to you. And there's so many affordable therapists around there. Find someone to talk to, because grief, you just have to let it run its course. So thank you for that, Sam. By that, we will just move on to the Mardi Gras section of the podcast. For those listening to the podcast for the first time, Mardi Gras is when I get to ask my guests questions that are drawn from inspirations on paper napkins that I purchased from Walmart, owned by a company called Mardi Gras. And the question Mom has chosen is this. So, Sam, you are a world traveler. What's your next stop and why? Goa, India. You know why? Back to India? (laughs) (laughs) Please pray tell why. Well, I don't know if I'm a world traveler or not, but your question said, uh, what the, like, the part that I focused on was which part do I want to go next? And so, so this is, uh, it's a coastal on the western coast of India, and close to Mumbai. Like, Mumbai is like one of the biggest. And in undergrad, in the final year, all my classmates went there, and I cannot remember why, but I couldn't make that trip. And when they came back, they had uh, these vivid stories about Goa that, you know, how, like, as a child or as a teenager, you hear about and it sticks with you forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a fun place that I always wanted to go, but for some reason or the other, it never worked out. So I have decided next time I'm in India, I'll go visit Goa and maybe an extended weekend, nice heavenly massage, sitting on the beach. That's what I want. That's what I want next time I, I, I'm in And that's anyways, thank you. Thank you for answering that. That was the end of the Mardi Gras section. So I want to ask you a question. So you know I'm Nigerian, right? Uh-huh. And I believe in cultural curiosity. 
Yep. That is at the end that we're all different. We have different backgrounds. But perhaps there are some questions you have about Nigeria or being Nigerian that you like to ask. And I should say I'm open to whatever questions you have. Now, um, I don't call myself an expert in everything Nigerian, but I'll try my best to answer them. So perhaps do you have any questions about Nigeria, probably something you heard in the news lately or something you're just curious about? Let's see. So when you come to the U.S. for the first time, yeah. are you, what are the differences in terms, of, in terms of your culture and the African-American culture? Oh, I see. I see. That's a very loaded question. And it's funny you mentioned it because I've interviewed guests on this issue um, from both ends. I think on a, phenotypically we you know, look the same. We will look black like you will call it here. But I think um, what, what, what's really missing there is connection. So if you know about the history of you know, slavery and all that, yes, African yes. Americans were, were practically forced from their, right. the motherland in Africa and then brought to the U.S. where they had to start making life for themselves. And if you compare the historical struggles of groups that have been, well, I won't call slavery, but groups that have been marginalized and that have suffered through a lot of oppression. Take, for example, the Jewish people or Vietnamese people. African-Americans have a, as a whole, there's a stark difference in that we can say that it hasn't been very easy for them to adjust to the U.S. culture because if you look at disparities as far as health, income, and equality, so I think the major difference would just be that cultural connection. Africans that come here into the U.S., they're very blessed to have a second home, like an original home where they can call home. Right. They can geographically point to a place that that is my hometown. How many people are there? So when you come to the U.S., you know you can always go back home. But we can't really say that for most African Americans, especially those that haven't made that journey back home, you know, to find out where they're from. So I think that lack of connection sometimes might be responsible for some of the differences as far as we, most Africans, not being very patient in understanding the struggles of African Americans. And also on the other part, where African Americans that really don't know much about Africa might be um, misled by what they see on TV, you know, through media stereotype about how Africa is just a hellhole with, you know, Ebola and AIDS. So overall, I want to just say that cultural connection. And like you said before, even though you've lived here for a while, you want to go back to India. I mean, I could ask you why, but I probably know the answer to that. It's probably that's where you feel the, the most at home. And, and that's, I think that's one of the things Africans are really blessed with. Like, for example, me, I've been here for more than seven years, but I'm always going to regard Nigeria as my home. There's just, there's just a wonderful feeling I have being Nigerian and how through that lens I can appreciate other cultures better. But if you know you are Nigerian, but you don't really know any place in Nigeria, or you don't even know anybody that is Nigerian around you that you can call family, imagine how much harder it will be. So I think that's really been the plight of most African Americans. So um, a short response to that would be that cultural connection. That's really, really missing. And that's a very critical component of uh, a stark difference between Africans and African Americans. Did that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's one thing I'm trying to work on. It's why this podcast is here, because I've met a lot of African-Americans that want to connect to the motherland. And my hope is to bring voices to them and also help them navigate that journey. Um, my hope is that we can find people that can, you know, help them with the onboarding process, um, giving them names, inviting them over for holidays and letting them get immersed in that African culture. Because connection is so important. And when you leave the U Nigeria, and for me, leaving Nigeria and coming to the U.S., I mean, I really appreciated being Nigerian more because... You know you're different, but what kind of makes it a little bit um, easier for you is you know there's always a home yeah. to go back to, you know? Yeah, so I, 
I can't even imagine not having that feeling of somewhere else to go back to. It's very choking. You know, so that's that's I one of my. I completely, I completely um, understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, that was a very, very good question. Thanks for asking that. Um, so I mean, this is this is this is the end of it. Actually, we've talked about a lot of stuff. Thank you so much for you know shedding light on. The adjustments you had to make, not just even living in India and coming to the U.S., but making that um, shift from being in the workforce and then taking a huge pay cut and going back to grad school. And then I think the biggest thing was about grief and losing not just a parent, but two parents and having to go through that process. I think the biggest takeaway from the story was we should let grief run its course. There's no fighting it. And whatever you need to do to, to help you, you know, with that by, you know, calling friends or finding someone to listen to you, talking to strangers or going through counseling, whatever level of help you need, go seek it. I think that's something that, you know, resonated really, really well with me. Not to seek it, like proactively conscious of. That, that's very true. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Thank you. Very true. It, it, no, thank it you. was a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts before I wrap it up? Not really. Okay. All right. All right. Well, um, thank you everyone for listening. I just had the pleasure of interviewing some gosh. He is currently a PhD student at the University of Texas. We've talked about his journey from India to the U.S., um, working in the pharmaceutical industry, and then making the decision to go back to grad school. And um, the highlight of this um, conversation was about his post on grief, and how he um, he's been able to process the the loss of his parents. And um, so if you if you currently listen to this and you're undergoing a form of grief for the other, I just want to let you know that you're not alone. And so find somebody proactively seeking that support you need to get you through that. And if you want to email me and let me know um, if you thought this was useful to you as far as um, grief and the process of grief, I'd love to really hear from as many of you as possible. Catch you guys on another episode of the More Simple Podcast. I remain your host, Masibel. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thank you. How do you feel? Much better because I had no clue in the beginning. Oh. I how it would go. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank you. Thank you. So here's Thank what I'm, Can I tell you something? Sure, go ahead. So you watch folks giving interviews or taking interviews on TV or whatever. Yeah. And you think, oh, it's just so easy. I mean, because when I was talking to you, I had trouble warming sentences because I was so conscious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I, I have a now. I have a. I have a newfound respect for a broadcaster. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you have to put your thoughts together and then cohesively communicate, and to do it day after day after day in front of so many people. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. And I've had to learn a lot. Like the first few ones were very awkward. I really had no idea what I was doing. But as I you know, did it more and more, I'm beginning to get my rhythm. Is all I'm saying. But no, thanks for that feedback. I really think is cool about you. Because so you didn't think you jumped in and you were like okay, I gotta do it, and you didn't care, and you knew that okay, I will soon find my rhythm. And but that initial yeah. uh, initial barrier, that barrier is yeah. easy to overcome. Most people would may think about it but not take the plunge. Thank you.